Welcome to the second episode of our new series, Explore Ecstatic Sensuality. Today we are going to have three elements to our presentation, which may seem separate at the beginning, but are actually quite interrelated. The first addresses the human being's first experience with sensuality. Where do we begin with sensuality? The second subject is repression, the theme that was initially discussed, or one of the first people to discuss it, was, of course, Sigmund Freud. But many others have discussed it after him, uh, over a wide range of psychological perspectives, particularly within the realm of psychoanalysis. One of the more enlightening investigators who reformulated Freud's concept of repression was the French psychoanalyst and philosopher Jacques Lacan, who was certainly known for his um, very fulfilling, and fulfilling to others, sensual and love life, if I may say. So he's quite an authority in the subject of sensuality, love, and everything psychological. And the third element, the third topic, may seem a little bit disconnected, but it's really not, and that is the subject of ritual, to which we shall return later. So, let us begin. The first thing that we're going to talk about is our first experience of intimacy. We are born. We emerge from the mother's body. And almost instantly, we have the sensual experience of the mother's embrace, the mother's holding us, the mother's holding us specifically against the breast, the mother's giving us the warmth of her body, the rhythm and vibration and aura of her body in a sensory way, sensory way, sensual way. We become reliant on that sensual experience with our mother. We wish to acknowledge this somehow, to make it permanent, to grab onto it, to glorify it, to honor it. And that feeling of honoring the sensual experience of physical contact with the mother is our first experience of love. And it predefines every love experience. It colors every love experience. It provides a framework for every love experience that we will have after that. So you're going to ask me, do you mean that sensuality precedes love? That sensuality comes before love? not the other way around. And I will say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. It makes perfectly good sense to me. So let's hold on to the idea for a moment, because I think that's a key concept in whenever we address sensuality. It's vital. It's extremely significant. A topic that we're going to address in a number of different contexts through this series in which we brought up in our first episode was the idea of concepts in and of themselves. The famous and uh, well-known platonic idea that the concepts in a certain way pre-existed, even the concept of a bed frame, which was used by Plato. Well, the bed frame in Plato's days, I assure you, looked a lot different than the bed frame that we have today, whether it's something you lay your mattress or your futon on or, you know, four-poster bed, whatever it is. But 
Plato seemed to feel and did feel that this, there was some ideal ide uh, form of a bed frame which ex which had pre-existed everything somewhere else and that no bed frame built by us, built by Ikea, built by you from an Ikea kit or any such similar thing will ever equal the bed frame that existed, pre-existed somewhere else. This is very an odd way of thinking. Taken to an extent and more relevant to our conversation, one might say that somewhere else pre-existing all of us was the ideal orgasm. And that perhaps in our search for pleasure or to honor our beloved or whatever, we should all be seeking this ideal orgasm which existed someplace else. And if that sounds ridiculous to you, it is. It is extremely ridiculous. But it all comes from another notion that we have as, as people, the notion of naming things. Naming things. The philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, with whom I disagree on just about everything, but we'll bring him up anyway, said, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. A very strange and crazy idea. If you can't name something, if there isn't, you know, we're not talking about putting a name on something. For example, the discussion of Wittgenstein and others of a private language. What use is it to have a private language no one can understand? Unless we make up neologisms all the time, something that Jacques Lacan liked to do and had a tremendous amount of fun at it. But the whole idea of naming things, taking from a bushel, a large bushel, whether it's the, you know, the Urban Dictionary or the Oxford English Dictionary, whatever your you know, dictionary is, and looking for a word to, that best describes something, an object. Maybe put an adjective on that word, or to an activity attach an adverb, whatever. But Rudolf Carnap in Der Lagische Aufbau, known as the Aufbau, among philosophers, Carnap had this interesting idea that it's easy and practical for an individual child in its early childhood to form its own concepts in its own, in its own mind. What is the need to have this, you know, idea that there are pre-existing concepts. We develop a concept of food, for example. We develop a concept of warmth. We develop a concept of touch. We develop concepts of color, light, and dark, which do not necessarily relate to some global concept that pre-existed us. So although nowadays philosophers tend to be idealists, many of them, using a very broad definition of that term, and always somehow struggle to get us back to this platonic concept, this platonic formula, that the ideal exists, that there are forms that exist somewhere else. In my mind, I don't exactly embrace everything Rudolf Carnap and the logical positivists had to say, but what he said in Der about the logical structure of the world, it makes a lot of sense to me. But the important thing going back is language does, and I'm going to agree with Wittgenstein in a certain way, although very different from his idea, the structure of language does indeed structure the way that we think. For example, as a Regents graduate fellow in Egyptology at a major university some time ago, I studied the ancient Egyptian language through all of its phases, from the earliest times up through the Coptic language, which is the last phase of the ancient Egyptian language, still the liturgical language of the Coptic church. Why do I bring this up?
because the Coptic language had 32 tenses. We have how many? I haven't bothered to count. We have the past, present, future, imperfect, future, and all these, these things, but they're kind of run-of-the-mill tenses, you might say. Whereas, the, uh, using Coptic examples, uh, uh, to say tisotem, derived from the ancient Egyptian word sedjem, tisotem, I hear. Shari sotem means I hear by logical necessity. It's the praesens consuetudinus, or sometimes called the habitude sense, something that needs to happen in the order of things. So you see, language, when we learn it, does structure our way of thinking. And if we had a more elaborate, I have to say it was, a more elaborate language like the ancient Egyptians did, we might think in totally, wholly different ways. Very curious idea but one which is an important one. Now we're going to jump over to our next theme, the next element of today's presentation, and that element is repression. Now, let's begin at a later stage of the conversation of repression rather than taking it back to the beginning with Sigmund Freud. There was a time acquainted with the 1960s, if you will, but also subsequent to that, when philosophers and social thinkers were looking at repression from a certain angle. The angle was the, the idea that repression is bad. Now, what is repression? Jacques Lacan said, when we repress something, we are always repressing a truth. Very interesting statement. Anyway, we'll go on to the, these later phases and then go back to the beginning, just like I promised. Herbert Marcuse, who was a member of the Frankfurt School, along with Theodore W. Adorno, Leo Leuventhal, who was my graduate advisor in, uh, in social psychology and psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and one of the great members of this Frankfurt School. One member of the Frankfurt School was a man named Herbert Marcuse. And Marcuse said, well, you know, repression, we got to keep some of it. What we got to get rid of is what he called surplus repression. Goodness gracious, what is that? Well, society needs, society needs for people to repress their desires, their feelings, to a certain extent. Otherwise, they'd be going around being too sensual, perhaps, or uh, too whatever they are. And the people need to tone down their repression. So that was one idea that Marcuse had, and he was in a certain sense responding to an American writer and philosopher named Norman O. Brown, who had three very important books, Hermes the Thief, Life Against Death, and Love's Body. And these books are extremely important even to read today, because what Norman O. Brown, known among his colleagues as Nobby, what Nobby Brown said was that we need to consider and contemplate the concept of a world of polymorphous perversity. Polymorphous, many forms. Perversity is not exactly the word that I, that, that I would use. I might substitute polymorphous sensuality. That sensuality taking many, 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 many forms, more forms than it takes today. I was discussing last time opening up one's sensory inputs to appreciate more down to the intimate 
cellular level, even. So that was an idea that he had, that Norman O. Brown, Nobby Brown had. And those two ideas were kind of having an arm wrestling kind of fight back for a while, but now they've sort of a little bit fallen out of fashion because things have come up to replace them, the so-called New Age concepts, various interests in, in Eastern religion and uh, Eastern practices, which with the exception of Tantra, which is a fascinating topic, which I am not an authority on, but which fascinates me. So many of these go back to Buddhism, which in a certain way, the, the search for nirvana is not a search for anything essential in my opinion. And I'm willing and really eager to hear anyone who contradicts this, this concept. It's very, very important to, to do that, to consider what we mean by all of these concepts that I am talking about. So we're still in the theme of repression. Lacan saying what we repress is the truth. A very, very basic kind of story of repression is that someone confronts something in his life. A complex story was Freud's uh, an Alizand patient, the rat man, and the whole concept of the whole basis of his fear of rats was a complex play of word association among a variety of words in German that included the syllable rot that involved even going back to the images of his father, etc., etc., etc. So the cure of this was the unraveling of this long list of, of associations. But wait a minute, Lacan and others said, well, you know, if the process of, oh, I should say something before I go on. The other element of repression is the idea that anything you repressed or many things you repressed return in some other way. The classic example is someone develops an obsession, a compulsion to wash their hands every day. Now, washing your hands is extremely important, but this is a good example of something if someone overdoes it and feels that they need to do it every five minutes, then something happens psychologically to that person. Because they've repressed something in their lives, there was a truth that they could not handle, right? They needed to do something to compensate and to basically zero out, to ground out this thing. But it never goes away. To repeat what Lacan said, the, the repressed and the return of the repressed are the, are the same thing. A very difficult thing to address. On the subject of, of repression, there's a a standard kind of visualization that we make of repression. And that is that there's kind of a line in our psyche. And things that are repressed are pushed beneath this line into somewhere, the pre-conscious, the unconscious mind, all right? And, uh, and therefore are kind of hidden things that work in the background that rumble along beneath and make us unhappy or make us do obsessive things. But that, you can't get rid of that easily. Freud said something that is often misinterpreted, where once id was, now ego shall be. But if you look at the Germans, it's a little bit more complicated than that. He was not eager to, not interested in wiping out the id, which as we discussed last time was a place of desire, creativity, a very important realm where urges towards sensuality begin. All right, he was not 
anxious for us to get rid of our id and replace it by ego. What is ego? Ego is this very secure sense of a self-directed self, if you will, of, a, of a, an autonomous self, of an egotistical self, if you want to say that, of uh, a self that is in control of the ship. We talked last time about the superego, that area of the psyche which is under the surface and begins at first, really around the time of toilet training, rather, which is the, the naysaying part of the mind. But Lacan was really very interested and in, in very, very brilliant in discussing the fact that this, we think of this naysaying part of the mind as a part of our brain, part of our cells, but it's really much more, much more complicated than that. It's not like this little voice saying, no, 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 don't do that, no, no, no don't think that, because it is very much tied up with society in, in, in a certain way, which is really a fascinating concept to think about. And extimacy was a term which he, which he, which he phrased, which he coined, which he liked to do all the time. As for Lacan, coining new words was a great hobby, a great delight. It's as if the, the external world in what is most intimate conspire and connect to create repression. Very, very interesting idea. But another concept of looking at repression, which kind of becomes more elaborate and more descriptive and more useful than this idea of a line in the middle, above is what is not repressed, below is what is repressed. Instead, to look at our experience, at our consciousness in terms of layers. And an analogy which I heard someone uh, use recently seemed very interesting to me, which is the analogy of music. Now here we're talking about music that is complicated and has, within the music, has what you might call layers or levels or dimensions or a multitude of things happening at the same time, which is just like life. Life, if it's lived to the fullest, has a multitude of dimensions, psychological and physical, happening simultaneously at the same time. But simplistic music of today, if you don't mind a little aesthetic comment on my part, like Philip Glass or John Adams, a music that goes boom, 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 and is very predictable, or um, music which is like, you might call it hipster elevator music, complacent hipster elevator music, like, you know, Brian Eno, people like that, people enjoy it. But that music seems, going back to last time again, to be a direct response to the compulsion to repeat, because things that repeat are very comforting to us. And if you want to talk about relationships, if you want to talk ba about bad sexual experiences, if you want to talk about anything that happens among people, how many of those things, if you go back to your own life, involve an element of repetition of something that has gone in the past? In Psychoanalysis, Freudian psychology, depth psychology. There's an important idea of transference, which is a word that is used in a number of different ways. I'm only going to use it here in one sense, in, in, in a very kind of superficial way of applying it. But I mean, transference is when we take, talking about it in this way, when we take an old experience for a part of our lives which is troubling, which is unresolved for us in some way, and that experience is transferred onto what is something that is happening to us in our present life so that we only see our present life in terms of that past episode, past instance, 
past mode of thinking which is long since over. Transference neurosis, it's sometimes called. This is, to my way of thinking, and to the way of thinking of many psychologists, one of the ways that uh, psychoanalytic psychology is superior to something like, for example, cognitive behavior therapy, which has a lot to do with saying, change your behavior. And if you change your behavior, you will be happier and find yourself doing better things and uh, not so troubled by life. Well, the way not to be so troubled by life is to do something about things you've repressed and to know when transference is taking place and to bleeping deal with it. Don't let transference transferred episodes from the early part of your life. If you've had a bad relationship and suddenly you find yourself acting, you suddenly you find yourself behaving toward your partner, the person you're involved in the relationship with, you suddenly find yourself repeating, repetition compulsion, Peter Holmes find the same things that you did in the past, you've got a problem. And the way to deal with that problem is not just by changing behavior in the present, it's by going back and struggling with your feelings, your reality, your misconceptions of reality, which took place during that previous relationship. It's hard work, it's labor, but it needs to be done in order that you can really be with your partner and not be with a shadow or a ghost of someone you were with in the past or wanted to be with in the past, whatever. So that is, I think, a, some of the key ideas of repression. But back to music, since I went into my digression. If you take a piece of music with levels, or if you want to call them layers, uh, an example would be my recent own, my own recent composition, Concerto per Pianoforte, Orchestra Dedicato, Nita de Francesco. In that piece, one has passionate expressions by the piano on one layer. Then one has in the strings one has what might be called an, an ostinato, but it's not really strictly an, an ostinato. It is an ongoing development in the low notes. So perhaps something somewhat more disturbing material under the surface that won't precisely go away. And then you have, you might say in the middle, lyrical material, which is in a certain way somewhat ambiguous played in this particular piece by the bassoon, the French horn, the euphonium, French bassoon, and flute. So that's the piece. So if you, if you want to experience that piece to the fullest, what you do is you do not ignore the more disturbing elements in favor of the passionate, very ecstatic, if you will, material on the surface. You deal with the other material in that piece. That is a way of looking at repression. It's not as if I regard the other material in my piece as things I repressed, far from it, but I think it's an interesting analogy. Now for a second, we're going to go back to the idea of the infant and its first experience with the mother. One of the key experiences which goes along with the central experience of feeling the mother's intimacy and feeling her body 
touching you was, holding you, holding you against her breast. In your response to that, your response with the warmth of, of your own body, what becomes a loving response because you're acknowledging and honoring your, your mother being there, being there for you, if you want. Okay. One of the most experiences is the gaze. And this has been discussed tremendously in psychology over the years by, by various people, especially those studying attachment theory. Many interesting figures in, in psychology, Bowlby, Winnicott, a number of, of others. Ferenczi, if you want to go a little bit uh, out into the hinterland. Wilhelm Reich is key for advancing discussions of sexuality. Although, to my way of thinking, he was more concentrated on orgasm, per se, than he should be. Again, it's a matter of naming. Do I want to name every kind of... If, do I want to stop if I'm kissing someone passionately and we're both into it? And it's like this astonishing creative experience that we're both having. Do I want to take a moment and say, well, you know, there's got to be a name for this kiss. This is the... Uh, Super fragilistic, espialidocious kiss. Yeah. No. It's this idea of naming or putting things into a box or get putting them into a category or a label or even worse, ranking them. Well, if, if I had to rank that kiss from 1 to 10, I'd say that's about a 7.2. You know, that's baloney. We want to get over that. But back to the notion of the gaze as in itself a sensual experience. Because it is. The child's gaze at the mother, almost feeling the mother with one's eyes, and the mother feeling the child with her eyes. The gaze is so important and is equally important in lovemaking, in sensuality, in affection, in relationships as we grow into adults, uh, reluctantly or not in some cases. For example, I was uh, in a loving relationship with a woman not so long ago, and with that woman and I lived in separate cities much of the time, and we uh, spent four or five hours a night, often, on Skype. This was a little bit before Zoom became the uh, preferred way of doing that kind of thing. And so much of the time was less of course we were talking. We were talking about everything under the sun and under almost inconceivable suns, under every sun that one could possibly imagine existed and then stretching it and stretching it beyond and farther beyond. But it was also a gaze, it was a, it was an, it was a sensual gaze, but it was also a gaze of laughter. Stop to think how important laughter is, humor is, in sensuality, in lovemaking. Lovemaking without a little bit of humor. After all, the tickle and the caress are not unrelated in a, certain, in a certain way. Think about that, because I think it's extremely important. Why not? Very significant concept. Again, there's a certain argument in many different fields that keeping things light at a certain level is quite important. I may even put on my glasses, which is something I avoid doing whenever possible. Anna Badiou, 
was a writer who was a great fan, if you want to say, of Jacques Lacan and wrote some very interesting things about Lacan, including Lacan's famous book, or famous statement, there is no such thing as a sexual relationship, which is a, oh, but he added something back. There is no such thing as a sexual relationship au pire, which means in French, or worse. Lacan was a great wit, and the statements were, were sometimes very, very abstract and equivocal and uh, ironic, if you want to say that. But one thing Lacan said, which may strike you as very difficult and very challenging, is love comes to compensate for a lack of a sexual connection. Wow. That's a hard one. One can look at that from a number of different perspectives. One could say that sometimes we rapidly pull out the love card when there's not quite a sexual connection yet, or maybe there, there, there isn't one. It hasn't begun with what Alain Badiou calls, always with a chuckle, the sexual adventure, which I, I think is a funny word. To hear him say that with his French accent is uh, worth the price of admission. But when there's no real sexual connection, and I would expand that to sensual connection, we play the love card, as if this somehow is an effort to compensate for this lack of a sexual, or I would say, sensual connection. So, Badiou goes on to say something that strikes me as, as, as very interesting, which he says that love should be neither platonic, in the sense of, this very much, the word interestingly goes back to our famous fellow Plato, which means supposedly sublime and abstracted from human life, certainly abstracted from sensuality. Nor should it be trivial. Nor should it be simply some kind of trivial, something expressed in, in simplistic language. But he says that love falls within the, within the order of labor, which harkens back to something I said last time. Love is a creative process. Love is a joint venture, as they'd say in the, uh, in the world, of, world of business. Uh, not always a fun place to be, but it can be amusing from time to time. And Badi also says that if you count on love to evolve this lack of connection to, to how should I say, to, uh, into something which is a, f a full form of sensual love. It ain't going to do it. It ain't going to do it. It's not going to work. So part of what we're, we're talking about here today and throughout this, throughout this series, no one is more interested in love than I am, but we have to find a grounding for love. Now here I confess I am talking about love between two adults, or conceivably I do not exclude the possibility of a menage a trois situation. I've seen them work um, successfully. I was part of a study, uh, advanced study at uh, the University of California at Los Angeles, where we studied relationships of various types amongst adults, and one of those relationships 
was the so-called group marriage or threesome types of relationships, and although they were complicated, many of the ones that we studied, and I interviewed participants and did psychological analyses of these participants, many of the participants, in fact, more than in the so-called traditional married group, which were often locked into patterns from which they could not escape, but in these multiple r relationships, non-dyadic relationships, you might well call them, uh, people were often men and, men and women were quite happy, and this was, I, I don't, we did not study any men with men, we did study women with, with women, so I can't comment on relationships, on the basis of my own work with this study on relationships between men. So, we're going to jump off from the concepts that we've talked about up until now, the beginning of sensuality, sensuality coming before love, dealing with repression and understanding things that it is a truth that becomes repressed. And by the way, I, I want to mention this again, an important part, part of psychology is not, you go in to see the shrink and the shrink tells you, well, it talks to you for five times a week for 10 years and tells you this is what you repressed Take a look. This is something you've been holding from yourself that you've been putting back into your, into your unconscious. So now you're cured, right? You know, what's, you know what's been causing all of these symptoms, like excessive hand washing or whatever the symptom might be. That's not the trick by any means. That's not the, the trick of the exercise at all. Okay, element number three may seem to have nothing to do with what I've talked about before. That is the element of ritual. When we think about ritual, for example, I don't apologize for being a member of the Anglican Church, the, the Episcopal Church, and in that church, at least prior to the pandemic, one takes communion, and communion is a very personal experience involving you, the priests, which is what we call our clergy in the denomination, and the people who share communion with you. I remember the most inspiring time I took communion was at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City, where my soon-become fiancé knelt, took communion from a marvelous, marvelous priest. She recognized that something interesting was going on be between us, that's for sure. And uh, after that, we went into one of the smaller chapels, the St. James Chapel, and I proposed to her, bent down on my knee, as people do. And at that very moment, an angelic choir began to sing out of nowhere from the main part of the cathedral, a bunch of kids from Minnesota. And it was a magical experience, but it was also an experience of ritual in a certain way. But a, a ritual which is open to things happening which are totally unexpected. No one expected that angelic choir to start singing at that moment. You know, that's the fun thing about fun thing about ritual. But what I'm talking about ritual here, rather, is that the word ritual conjures up, connotes the notion of the sacred. Now, the notion of the sacred is a complicated concept because the notion of the sacred brings up the notion of notion of of God who is somewhere else. 
another philosopher who perhaps speak up a little bit in future talks is Baruch Spinoza, who was excommunicated from Judaism, actually. And um, he had a very unusual and unexpected death when he was in the prime of his life. And some people have the theory that uh, the philosopher Leibniz put out a hit on him. An interesting story from that period of time. Maybe someone will make a movie of it. But Spinoza, whenever he talked about God, he always used the term Deus siwe natura. Deus siwe natura, God or nature. And he never said one or the other. God or nature. And another idea of Spinoza's was that we are a part of nature. And if we are a part of nature, we are a part of God. And again, I repeat, in my personal view, I have no idea. If there's a God out there, and if there's a God, it is not a God who tells you, who lay, lays a whole bunch of rules on you, nor is it a God who tells you that you cannot have pleasure, sensuality, and love in this life. Uh, that kind of God is, is not, interested, not interesting to me. It's more, I prefer the ancient Greek gods, maybe, or in some ways the, the, the Hindu gods. We've got a whole bunch of gods for different, for different purposes. You know, encourage you in different ways of your own personal development, you might say. But in the course of a creative ritual between, between lovers, a creative sensuality between lovers, ritual elements which can always be played with and joked with, what might those involve? They might involve balms or oils or fragrances, cloths, elements of other sensory elements in the scene, which is perhaps set up to, to, to begin with or which, which evolves. One can, for fun, set up a sensual context in which these other elements, these other props, if you want to call them, but they become more than, than, than props. They become part of the sensual play, expanding the feeling of a certain fabric against, against one's body, shared by two people. The difference of the feeling of the fabric from the difference from the feeling of, of bodies. Balms and, 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 and oils. The joy of mutual massage the subject of which I am not an authority at all, but uh, the elements of massage can indeed be part of a central experience which may or may not lead to lovemaking as traditionally defined. So these have been my main topics, my main elements for today's show, if you want to call it that. I'm going to flash up a little graphic at the end of a brief passage from my new book, which is Kiss and Make Better, an Intimate Memoir of the Future, just so, so as to leave you with a little something. And again, we're going back to the theme of honoring the beauty of one's beloved. That's what it's all about. The physical beauty, the mental beauty, the creative beauty sensory, sensual beauty, the psychic beauty.
the beauty of the other individual's ability to reach through time, psychic beauty. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed this to a certain extent. I certainly have. Honoring and paying tribute to a woman's body with one's hands, one's lips, one's breath and one's tongue is an essential element of a loving, sensuous experience or relationship between a man and a woman. There is no love without a mutual appreciation of one's physical beauty, not only spiritual beauty, physical beauty. And there is no love without elevating and fine-tuning sensuality to the highest possible level and beyond. To share sensuality and to encourage one's partner's sensuality is one of the loftiest manifestations not only of love, but of love's essential component, respect. From my upcoming book, Kiss and Make Better, an intimate memoir of the future. Musical excerpt, Sanat Pranita, written in honor of the birthday of Anita de Francesco in the year 2020.